at a press conference being interrupted by a journalist throwing a shoe at him. And his journalist didn't interrupt with just throwing one shoe. He threw two shoes at him. Anybody remember this? This is from the 2009 Video Music Awards. Taylor Swift has just won Best Overall Artist, and Kanye West felt like he needed to go up and tell her and tell the rest of the world that uh, she didn't deserve it. He felt the need to interrupt her speech, go in and say, you don't deserve it, and tell the rest of the world that it should have gone to Beyonce. So imagine 10 years later, hard to imagine that Kanye West would have been the number one gospel artist in America in 2019, right? Imagine back then you never would have thought that was the case. So as uncomfortable as interruptions are to the people involved in situation, so it's even awkward for us as we're watching it. As uncomfortable as interruptions are, embracing interruptions is part of following Jesus. And as we'll see later on, Jesus shows us why that's important. So our, our visit this morning starts in the Gospel of Luke, and we're at the very end of Luke. Uh, it's towards the end of Luke, and it's the very end of Jesus' time here on earth. And you may hear me say that uh, throughout the morning that we're going to visit in the gospel. That's a term that I use talking about reading the Bible and being in the, in the Word. And it's a term my dad used to use that he would say, your mom and I are stopping by to visit with so-and-so, or we visited with so-and-so the other day. And I've adopted it to as I'm reading the Bible because embedded in that is an assumption that I'm going to engage, that we're going to engage with the other person we're visiting with and respond we don't come with an agenda. We come to engage with that person and respond and walk out better people at the end of the day. So you may hear me use that term, visit. So there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're looking at uh, the Gospel of Luke. And every one of the Gospels is set up to tell the good news of Jesus, right? That's, that's the bottom line of why these Gospels are written. Luke was a physician. So he was trained, educated. He was a companion of Paul's. And so he tells us at the very beginning why he took it upon himself to, to write these words. He was compelled to write them, and they've been endured for so long. And he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he's got the term eyewitnesses here. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. There's a lot of debate about Theophilus. Was he real? Was he not? We're not going to talk about that this morning, but he's writing it. And here's the bottom line, right? Why is Luke investigating all these things? And he says, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Okay, so with that context, now we head back to the end of Luke, at a place called the Skull. And at the Skull, we see three things. We see three crosses. And it's just outside of Jerusalem. One cross in the middle is Jesus. And on one side is a criminal. On another cross, and on the other side is another criminal. So picture that. You've got three people at a place called the Skull, crucified. And Jesus has been through, at this point, He's been through a, a speedy trial. He's been beaten. He's been flogged. His clothes have been taken. He's been scorned, mocked. Insults have been hurled at him as he's heading to this place to be crucified. People are there to watch this happen. And uh, above his head is a sign that says King of the Jews. That was his crime. 
So all this has, has taken place. And he's here, and he's, he's hanging on that cross, kneel, his, his nails through his hands and his feet, criminal on the right, criminal on the left. And we see one of the criminals who hung there started to hurl insults him too. It's not bad enough. So we're at Luke chapter 23, verse 39. And what's Jesus do? He doesn't do anything. He's quiet. And the Romans were experts at brutality, at torture. They invented all kinds of ways, and they would bring people out and make it part of the entertainment and try to leave an impression on people to keep them from doing things that they didn't want done. And crucifixion was the worst of that. And we see the other criminal who hung there saying, don't you fear God? He's, he's rebuking the other criminal, right? So it's impossible. It's almost impossible to talk, let alone breathe, from what I heard about crucifixion because of the pain of having to raise yourself up to fill your lungs with air. And he says, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said. Since you so he kind of feels like he deserves to be there to some extent, right? For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Talking about Jesus. It doesn't just stop there. This, this criminal, after some period of time, probably speaks back up again and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because he knows wherever he's going, how this is all going to play out, he's not going to be with Jesus. He knows the type of person Jesus is. And this is where Jesus allows himself to be interrupted. He says, he, he hears the, the cry, he hears this man trying to, wanting to have him remember him. And Jesus answered him and says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let that sink in for a minute. You've got a, a guy who thinks that what he's getting on the cross is somewhat deserved. He knows he's not going where Jesus is going. And at the very last, he says, he's asking Jesus to remember him. He wants to follow Jesus wherever Jesus is going. And Jesus allows this suffering. This, he has the weight of the world on his shoulders. I mean, sin of the world is on his shoulders. He's been, he's been beaten. He's been flogged. And he says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. If this grace of God is available through Jesus for this criminal, it's available for everybody. So now our visit takes us back in time to Galilee. And what we see are Jesus and the rest of the gang coming across the Sea of Galilee. They've just been to an area across, and they're coming back on a boat. And so from here on, every time we see Jesus, we're going to see crowds. So Jesus was attracting people. For some reason, he was, he was not for some reason, we all know why. He was extremely attractive. People were coming. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to see what he was all about. They wanted to, to even if they could, touch him. So we're going to see crowds throughout. So, so Jesus and the gang have just come across the Sea of Galilee via boat. And whatever plans they laid out, whatever their itinerary was when they were coming across the boat, are about to be completely turned around. I mentioned that you're going to, we're going to see crowds everywhere. So as you read through Luke and hear these stories, you see crowds everywhere. But what does it mean for us? Is I wanted to put up here for us three things to keep in mind, trying to remain in the community, interruptible, and in the moment. Paul talks about being awake. So in the community, I put that there because in Jesus' time, from what I understand, privacy, in the first century, privacy was hard to come by. 
mean, everybody lived so close together, you could hear what everybody said, and there was gossip all around, so privacy was hard to come by. So I intentionally put that here because I think we're tempted to remain outside of parts of our community. Certain areas we don't want to get involved, things we don't want to deal with. Maybe it's not even that much. Maybe it's just the comfort of our own home and our own screens where we're tempted to not get involved in certain things. So if we're able to be in the community, be interruptible and be in the moment, then as we'll see later, we're kind of living out uh, that embracing Jesus, embracing interruption as part of following Jesus. So here we go again, a crowd, right? So we're in Luke chapter 8, verse 40. So they're off the boat. They have some plan of what's going to happen. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And now Luke introduces us to an interruption. Constant theme this morning, right? So a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, okay, this, this guy um, was elected by the people of, uh, of Galilee. He's a leader in the community, kind of a bigwig uh, when it comes to the community. He came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl, about 12, was dying. I mean, 2,000 years later, I mean, that still hits you when you read that, right? I mean, this guy is it. He's just so desperate. His daughter's about to die. And this isn't in the text, but I can kind of imagine, I like to imagine the disciples are here, and they've just come across the Sea of Galilee, and the group that they were visiting wasn't really that interested in hearing what they all had to say. So they're back in Galilee, and I could see the disciples, this is in my mind, saying, okay, We've got some momentum. We've got somebody at the top of the house. We've got a, a leader in the synagogue who's interested in seeing what we're doing and how we're doing it, what Jesus is all about. We've got some momentum here. So they, I, think I could just see James who grew up with, James was the brother of Jesus. I could see him uh, saying, you know, we went to the synagogue, we learned together, and now he, he recognized that this is the leader of the synagogue who wants Jesus' help. So what does Jesus do? He decides to go. He allows himself to be interrupted, whatever their plans were. And then, if that's not enough, Luke throws in another interruption. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Now, another version of the Gospels says that she'd spent all her money trying to be healed, and no one was able to heal her. So we have a, a woman who's poor, She's been sick for years. She's ill. No one's been able to heal her, and she shows up in the story. And you may not realize, but if there were, if you had blood issues, discharge, you know, some hemorrhaging in the first century, you were outcast from the rest of society. You weren't allowed to participate in religious activities, community activities. So there's a good chance she's a lonely woman, also. So Luke introduces her, and she has this faith where she just wants. So she come, came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately the bleeding stopped. Jesus stopped. He's open again. He's embracing another interruption and says, who touched me? And everyone denied it. Now here are the disciples. Peter, Luke takes a, makes a point of putting in Peter in here saying, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. you know, so I'm kind of envisioning this like uh, maybe the 2020 presidential election where you have a 
presidential candidate you know, pushing through and they have their handlers and it's real tight. Everybody wants to see the candidate, wants to touch the candidate. And the handlers are saying, we've got somewhere to go, we've got a place to be. I mean, they're trying to get to, the, to Jairus's house to save his daughter, right? And, and this, is, this is a big deal because this is the top of the house leader. And Jesus stops in the middle of this, interrupted by a woman who has nothing to offer him, nothing to offer society. Society doesn't even want to be a part, have, have her be a part of their life. So she's, he stops. And Peter says, Master, the people are crowding, pressing. You know, I can kind of get, let's go, let's go. And um, Jesus says again, he's, he's relentless. Someone touched me. And then the woman, she realizes, okay, this is not going to stop. So she knows it's not going to go unnoticed, and she comes trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, so these are people that don't really want anything to do with her to begin with, and she's confessing this and talking about this in front of all the people. She told why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. The story doesn't end there. Right after that, one of the helpers from Jairus' house comes and says, you know what, forget it. Your daughter just died. So Jesus, the rest of the gang, go do your own thing. And Jesus says, no, she's not dead. She's just asleep. The story progresses where she ends up going to, they end up going to his house, and Jesus tells her to get up, and she gets up. Let's pause right here for a second. So Luke, okay, Luke has, has shown us Jesus and the guys coming across the Sea of Galilee. They're here. They have whatever plan. And he shows us an, inter, an inter, interruption, a woman, within an interruption to kind of drive home the point, right, that this is part of following Jesus and being who he is. Now, the other thing he shows us is the hierarchy of the kingdom of God. We've already talked about the criminal having access, right? So... Jesus is going, and all, these, all the crew is going to meet with a synagogue leader, a bigwig, stops and helps a, a woman who has nothing to offer. Luke drives the point home because he makes a point of saying, what does Jesus say? Daughter to the woman, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This isn't in the text either, but in my mind, I kind of see, you know, if, he, if Jesus is stopping, talking to this woman who's sick, no money, lonely, and I could kind of see, what if Jairus would have said, hey, what are we doing? We've got to get to my house with my daughter. I think Jesus, in my mind, he could, he could easily look Jairus in the eye and say, Jairus, I know your daughter, our daughter, is sick and needs me. But my other daughter is sick and needs me too. Fortunately, Luke knows that we're going to have opportunities in our life to allow in interruptions to come into our life to show who Jesus is to other people and not have to miraculously heal people, not have to suffer the way that he suffered on the cross. He gives us other examples, and our visit takes us next to a road that passes through Jericho. Now, Jesus was, so the way this all worked, Jesus was in Galilee. He's making a trip down to Jerusalem. This is where it all, this is where the skull that we talked about earlier, this is where it all kind of winds up. So that's their destination. So they're coming down through Jericho. It's a little, so you have Galilee here, Jerusalem down here, Jericho is down here. There's a lot going on in Jericho. It's an east-west corridor. There's a lot of traffic and trade going through there. It's become a, uh, kind of a major area. And what we see is that Jesus and the gang is going to pass through Jericho on their way to Jerusalem. And then... 
Luke says, introduces us to a man named Zacchaeus as a part of this. Well, Zacchaeus is in Jericho. And we know, a lot of you know the song, right? Zacchaeus was a, we, yeah, we look, Bonnie and I, I was talking to Bonnie uh, earlier in the week about, we were going to talk about Zacchaeus a little bit, and we both agreed it'd be good for Wyatt to come up and lead everybody in that song. So, no, just, just kidding, Wyatt. Just kidding. We won't do that to you. Zacchaeus, yeah, he, was, he was short, but that's, that's not the most important part as we're reading what, what Luke is telling us. So Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. This is the only time in the New Testament that this term is used, chief tax collector. So the way Rome set things up is you would, they would expect a certain amount of taxes to come from different regions, and people could go and pay to get the right to collect taxes, and apparently that's what Zacchaeus did. And he would have other tax collectors underneath him who would go out and collect taxes and then send it off to Rome. Now, if you're Zacchaeus, are you going to run the risk of collecting too little or too much compared to what Rome was expecting? They're going to collect more, right? And maybe even intentionally collect more. So the result of that was is they had lined their pockets and the text tells us Zacchaeus was, what does it say here, was wealthy. So the town knows him. They can't stand him. They despise the guy. He's disloyal. Actually, his only loyalty is to the Roman Empire. He's a traitor to them. And, and so we're introduced to him, and we learn a little bit more about him. That he's, He, like everybody else, is curious about this, this guy, Jesus. What's going on? Who these people are? So he's curious, and he wants to see what it's all about. But the crowd is so big. Again, right, recurring theme, crowds everywhere. The crowd is so big that he's got to run ahead, Okay. So I've, I've taken a little bit of the, the, the way to describe this from Andy Stanley. I love the way he describes the, this Zacchaeus encounter. And if you've ever seen any of his uh, sermons online, you know I'm using the same format that he uses. I figure if, if it works for him, why not use it? So he says, you know, maybe envision this almost like a parade. Like if you've been to the fall festival parade, downtown Franklin, the streets get lined, everybody's there. I can imagine, you know, the parents telling the kids to get out of the house. They've got to get, got to get a good spot saving spots for people, you know. So this is almost like a parade area because Jesus is a huge deal at this point. Everybody wants to see it. And you can tell because the text tells us the crowds are so big that Zacchaeus being little has to run out ahead. He's short. He has to run out ahead to see what's going on. So he does that. He runs out ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. He wants to, and you got a grown man climbing a tree here because he wants to see, see Jesus. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, come down immediately. What are the disciples thinking? Oh, we're just passing through. Let's go. We're trying to get to Jerusalem, right? You know, and Jesus is stopping again, being interrupted. And what about the town people? Because everybody's there to see Jesus. And when Jesus stops, everybody's eyes, you know, they're really focusing. What's he doing? Who's he talking to? What's going on? And Zacchaeus is up in that tree. And I think we read, I personally read over this so many times and never realized that Jesus, I mean, we know Jesus knows his name, but what that might mean for the people there who can't stand the guy, they're like, oh, Jesus knows his name. So they know what he's done. They know how bad he is. Jesus knows who he is. He knows why we despise him. We know that he's just loyal to us, and he's only loyal to the Roman Empire. So they think Jesus, that Zacchaeus is going to get his. I wouldn't be surprised if they're thinking, okay, finally, the guy who knows him and knows what's gonna ha knows his name, but that's, you know, you know the rest of the story here, right? That's not what happens. Jesus reached the spot, says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, 
I must stay at your house. The people in the crowd have got to be thinking, wait a minute, we didn't even get to talk to Jesus. We haven't, you know, we haven't had a chance to hang out with him, and he's going to go stay at this guy's house, Zacchaeus, the guy that we can't stand, who's against us. But So Jesus is showing us that the kingdom of God, once again, is available to everybody. Let's recap. So far, we have a criminal who thinks he deserves crucifixion, welcomed into the kingdom of God through Jesus. We have a wealthy synagogue leader, right, and his family. We have a woman who has nothing to offer. And now we have a rich, despised, corrupt individual, all being invited to come into the kingdom of God. Look what the people think. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. They didn't get it, did they? This may have been the only time Zacchaeus had to confess what he'd done and to follow Jesus. It might have been the only time in his life. And, it, and so as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of why I've always been interested in the Japanese tea ceremony. Anybody familiar with the Japanese tea ceremony at all? I'm a tea guy, if you know me, hot tea, iced tea. The Japanese tea ceremony represents that no human interaction can happen exactly the same way twice. So what happens in, in the tea ceremony is people get together and there's a room, it's either within a room or outside of a tea garden, outside of a garden, and people come together, and they sit down, and they take time out of their day to acknowledge that this human interaction can never happen exactly the same way twice. And there are rituals around it. There are things that they use that are part of it. The guest has a role. The host has a role. Everybody plays a role. And if you've ever seen, you kind of see it in the picture here, the walls are thin rice paper walls that go around the room. It's not you know, like the walls we have here. They're thin rice paper. So you can see the shadows. You can see the outlines of what's happening and who the people are. It's dark. The light's able to come back and forth, but you can't see the details. So that the, those, it's veiling what's actually the truth that's actually happening on the other side. Kind of know where I'm going here. What you may not know about the Japanese tea ceremony is the connection to us. So this has, been, this has been going on in Japan for about 500 years. Well, about 400 years ago, there was an intense persecution of Christians. So Christians would find themselves having to worship underground, wherever they could. And they realized the Japanese tea room, where they would have the ceremony, was a perfect place. Because as they're there in the community of believers with each other, the people on the outside, through that thin rice paper wall, see a typical Japanese tea ceremony taking place. Those on the inside are having communion. Thanking Jesus for what he had done, remembering him. That right happening on the inside. That's not the case, as, as we're wrapping up here, of, that's not the case as we head back to the skull. Think about that moment with that criminal. Reveals to that criminal, let's call him a man from here on out, reveals to that man who he really is and who that man is in light of that. That he knew, the criminal thought he knew who Jesus was, if you go back and look at it, because he knew that Jesus didn't deserve this and that wherever he was going, he was not going to be. He, he thought he knew who Jesus was, but it wasn't until Jesus actually allowed the interruption and responded appropriately, responded in his own way, that he truly understand, understood who Jesus was and that grace was available for someone like him. It was available for a leader of a synagogue available for a woman who had nothing to offer, available for a despised, wealthy tax collector, available for you 
and for me, no matter what we've done. That's good news. It doesn't end there, though, because in God's wisdom and his power and his mysteries, he's able to take a one-on-one interaction that we're having and change the lives of somebody else who we don't even know is there. Someone who's watching, someone who's listening, somebody who's observing. So as we wrap up this, we wrap up where we left off at the skull. Luke is describing the last moments of Jesus' life. It says it was now about noon, the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Think about that rice paper veil. That's the veil. If you ever heard the veil was torn, that's what we're talking about. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. And out of nowhere, essentially, and it could end there, right? out of nowhere, Luke introduces us to a centurion. And we see it in two of the other gospels, the same story. The centurion is, he's in charge of a hundred Roman military men. This guy has some influence in, in the empire. He introduces us to a centurion who's been seeing, he's been watching this whole thing happen. He saw Jesus beaten, saw him flogged, coming in, getting insults hurled at him. He saw the whole thing happen. He saw him actually ask God to forgive the people that were doing this to him. He saw everything that we see here physically happen in the environment, and he saw Jesus allow a man who was sentenced to die, who didn't think he had any worth, to actually interrupt his life so that he could show him God's grace. So the centurion, seeing what had happened, all those things, praised God and said, surely that is a righteous man. We have an opportunity when we're out in the community, if we're interruptible and we're in the moment, to be able to show who God is is, who Jesus is. It's available to everybody we've seen, right? So imagine if we walk into a room, next time we walk into a room, we pause and say, God, show me what you're doing in the other person and help me be a part of that work. A couple things happen when you do that. It relieves all the pressure. Now you're aggressively responding to the situation. Now we're not going to create something for God. We're not taking God to them. God's already there, right? So we walk into that room with the attitude of we're here. We're here to visit with you. Show me what you're doing in that other person and help me to be a part of that great work. Imagine if we did that to our family when we walked in the door. If we did that to our church here. Everybody, when we saw them, we had that attitude. Maybe our place of work, school, Pick, maybe going into Walmart or, or you know, Walgreens down the road, if we had that attitude, how many people could see the real Jesus, the Jesus of grace? Not the one that they, like the, like the criminal on the cross, the man on the cross, thought he knew who Jesus was. A lot of people in our community think they know Jesus because of something they've heard, you know, something they've seen on television or movie, but it may not be the same as the Jesus of the, of the gospel. I imagine how many lives could be changed. It's better than that, though. Because of the centurion story, we're able to realize that there are also so many people out there that see that interaction. We don't even know they're there. We don't even know that they're listening. We don't know they're observing. But somehow in God's power, he's able to draw them closer to himself. We don't even, we're probably never even going to know that that's happening. So I have a suggestion. And it's before you go into a room this week, next week, whatever it is, 
say this prayer. I, I got it from Aaron Nequist. He wrote a book called The Eternal Current. It's, uh, I think it's not uh, faith-based practices to keep you from drowning. So pull out your phones, if you have phones. Pull it out and take a picture. Take a picture of it. If you don't have a phone, ask your neighbor to text you a picture of it when you're done. Take a picture of it. And as you're, and as you're taking the picture, now you know you have this on your phone. You can make it your backdrop. You can send it to somebody to say, hey, I saw this at church over the weekend, and I want to be accountable to actually having a different frame of mind, embracing interruptions as I'm having one-on-one -on -one interactions. Can you check in with me in a week or two and see how I'm doing? Or maybe stop right here and think about who, who is the person that helped show me who Jesus was? And text them and say, hey, I saw this at church. I want to thank you for showing me who Jesus was by allowing me, allowing my life to interrupt your life for some period of time. Thank you for doing that. As you're finishing taking up your pictures, the worship team is going to come and they'll lead us in one last song. It's called uh, Ancient Words, and there's a verse in there that says, changing you and changing me. It's not in there.